Lord, we are completely and absolutely dependent upon you. We sing these songs that remind us, we do our studies through Sunday school that remind us as we were reminded of this morning that we are so prone to forgetting and wandering away from the righteousness that's been given to us in Christ. We feel like we must do something to earn your favor. We feel like we must do something to, to keep your favor, Lord, and yet um, we were saved um, by grace and we continue to be sanctified by your grace. It is by our position being set apart and adopted into your family in Christ in which we now stand and we work out from that, Lord, with hearts of thankfulness, gratitude, worship. We sing to you. We've gathered together this morning as a called out body of people that have been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ, sealed by your Holy Spirit, and we gather together to proclaim your excellencies, to worship you, and to encourage and to edify one another using the gifts that you've given to us to use, Lord. And, and I know that the, there have been varying types of weeks for all of us as we gather together this morning. And I pray, God, that you would help us once again to um, focus, to orient our hearts and minds towards the truthfulness of your word the truthfulness of, of who you are, God, as you reveal yourself to us in all of your beauty and all of your glory. We sing songs about your beauty and your glory because they remind us that there is, there is something that is awaiting us that is going to be awe-inspiring for all of eternity. There will never grow a day in which we grow tired of looking upon your righteousness and your beauty and your majesty and we're training ourselves, Lord, help us now to continue to, to acquire that taste for that eternal glory, that eternal goodness and righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that um, as we get into the word today, that you would do that in our lives. Hearts, God, can grow. Hearts can change. We, your intent is actual transformation. And so I pray that that is what happens here this morning, Father. We um, have our hearts changed um, for the good as we look to you and we yield ourselves and sit on our submit ourselves to the truthfulness of your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, in that opening prayer, you heard the gist of what the sermon's about today. So I um, hope you're paying attention. We are continuing our sermon series through um, various books of the Bible as we talk about the church. And today we want to talk about the church, his beloved. Um, this is part five, and it is the preservation of the church. And I was originally going, so the preservation of the church and having the two subpoints of discipleship and discipline, these are two things that God does in very practical ways to preserve his church. Um, we become disciples, we grow to be mature disciples, and if need be, well, and we'll see next week, there's a sense in which all of us are subject to the discipline of the Lord, and then there are occasions in which God um, uses the church to discipline us um, for our good, if need be. And we're going to get to the discipline part next week. We're going to uh, focus on the discipleship aspect today. I was going to try and put both of these things together, and as I was preparing and my sermon notes were growing and growing, it became very clear to me that I was only going to be able to cover one of them today. So we're going to look at discipleship in and of itself this morning, and then Lord willing, we will look at um, the preservation of the church, the second part concerning discipline next week. Um, so again, just by way of recap, I want to uh, bring us to where we are today. I've been talking about um, the idea and the goal is that God would have us build our lives around the local church, and we would do that because we love the local church, and we would love the local church because we see that he loves the local church. And so the first, the first sermon in this series was talking about and bringing an emphasis upon the vertical dimension of God's love for his bride, in which we are all a part of, in which all believers from all time are a part of his bride, the universal church. Um, and what we talk about today in discipleship is going to tie directly back in to that, the idea of his love for his bride. So we looked at that first. Secondly, we looked at because of that vertical love that comes to us, we then have a horizontal love that goes out towards one another. And that horizontal love 
is always um, practiced within the, within the boundaries of God's word, the truth. We are not free to just say, I feel like this is a loving thing to do, therefore I will do it. God's love and our love for one another is always defined biblically by what God defines as being loving, what God defines as being good. And so his truth is, are the, gives us the boundaries for which we can fully flourish, really, and love one another and love God appropriately. We then talked about um, the command that God gives us in the Word for unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and to edify one another, right? So as we express our love for one another, we're using the gifts that God gives to us to edify one another and to maintain the unity that He has already bought for us by the Spirit of God. And so we just seek to maintain that as we use our gifts to edify and build one another up. Last week we talked about um, various offices that God has gifted to the church to continue to help build up and edify and maintain that unity. And today we want to talk about how God will um, preserve the church um, through discipleship. Um, I want us to understand um, something as we, as we get into discipleship. A few things. One, um, you will never know the joy, you will never embrace God's purposes and trust in his plan during discipleship and discipline if you don't understand first his covenantal love for you. You won't understand um, the process. You won't understand and you won't enjoy the process of discipleship. You won't understand and enjoy God's means of discipline in our lives if you don't first understand his covenantal love for you. Um, because his covenantal love for us intends to actually transform us and change us into the image of Christ. So if we don't understand that um, out of God's love for us, his intent is to make us more like Jesus, then you're really going to struggle with discipleship and discipline because these are the things that God uses to accomplish the expression of his love and the transformation of us into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be like him in our character. He uses discipleship. He uses discipline to actually grow us and change us. And so rather than um, rejecting or being resistant to discipleship, rejecting or being resistant to his discipline in our lives, these are things that we should embrace and we should actually enjoy because they are accomplishing our conformity into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be like him. And that's really a, a a great expression of his love for us to not leave us where we are, to not leave us who we are, but to grow us and to change us. Um, and so we need to understand that. The second thing that we need to understand before we get into discipleship specifically this morning is when we're going to talk about four areas that God uses to disciple us. Um, this is all built and based upon the preserving work of God in our lives through the blood of Christ by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to understand that how we are ultimately, how the church is ultimately preserved is because Christ purchases it. It's by his blood. And, in the, and the believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 speak to this truth. If you remember uh, week 1, I said in Matthew 16, 18, Paul, Jesus would make this declaration um, that I, he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he is the builder of the church. The reason why the church is preserved is because he's the one that builds it. He is the one preserving it. It is his active work um, for his bride, in his bride, that preserves it for all of eternity, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. There is nothing that Satan or any of the principalities or anything of this world can do to prevent Christ from preserving and building his church. And as believers, we know that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was saying in John 10, 29, that no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. So it is, it's his activity. The reason why the church is preserved is because Christ is preserving it. The Holy Spirit is preserving it. 
the Father is preserving his church, and that includes all of the believers, all the believers therein. And so we look to him and we depend upon him to do that. But what he, one of the things that he uses in a very practical way to do that in our lives is dis- discipleship and discipline, which we'll get to next week. So we want to consider four areas in particular regarding discipleship. Um, the first one that we want to look at this morning is the fact that God disciples us. Turn with me, if you will, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'm talking about number one, regarding discipleship, we see the scriptures teach that God is the one who disciples us. And throughout all four of these, we need to remember that the thing that he uses to disciple us is his word. God, what remains consistent throughout all of these, we're going to look at the fact that God disciples us, our leaders disciple us, we disciple one another, and we disciple ourselves. Those are the four things that we want to look at this morning. God disciples us, our leaders disciple us, we disciple one another, and we disciple ourselves. But the thing that God uses in all of those is the same thing. It's the Word. He uses the Scripture to disciple us. A Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say in his book, Life Together, it is not our hearts that determine our course, but God's word. It is God's word that always determines the course for the believer. And we see his word being the constant tool that he uses in our lives to accomplish what he wants. Disciples are people of the word. And we see in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the fact that God disciples us himself. Um, Paul would write to, Tim, to, excuse me, to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, that word training is key, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, another key word, for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We see in this passage that God is the one who disciples us. It is the grace of God that has appeared. Who is he ta- what is he talking about? Who is he talking about that has appeared? But the Lord Jesus Christ. He, God has appeared to us as the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings, this is what he does, number one, he brings salvation in Titus 2.11 for all people. Also, in verse 12, you'll see that he trains us to renounce ungodliness. You, I mean, if really, if you look at the entire Bible after the fall, it is one large manual of discipleship. How do people that have been impacted and affected by the fall into sin grow and change and be prepared for redemption and to be with the Messiah for all of eternity. He is constantly speaking about this process of sanctification, this process of growth and discipleship. And we see that God's very own hand is upon the lives of his people to grow us and to change us. He trains us. He trains us to renounce ungodliness. And this is the thing that I want us to really grasp this morning is that Like I had already said, God's love for us is real, practical, tangible change and transformation in our lives. When it says that he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, it means that we are actually growing to say no to the things of the world, the things that I'm inclined to. Part of me and my sinfulness wants to do these things. I want to think this way. I want to feel this way. I want to do these things. But because God is discipling me, he's training me to say no. And there is a point where I, 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 will, I have to make decisions, we'll talk about this later, to actually say no to those things and to deprive myself of what I feel like doing sometimes. It's very countercultural because the culture says your feelings are the indicator of truth. And the scriptures say, no, God, your feelings are 
most of the time the opposite of the indicator of truth. What is always the indicator of truth is God's word. And we'll always live according to that. And God is constantly reminding us what he calls us to do, how we can grow to be his disciples. And I want us to see this thing as a good thing, as an enjoyable thing. It is good for us. It's enjoyable for us to grow, to be like him, to say no to things we shouldn't say yes to. Jesus is the one who taught this most clearly as we see in the New Testament. The fact that God disciples us, his relational, doctrinal, practical teaching really impacted and really transformed the lives of those who followed him. When he came, there wasn't a broad network of disciples. There was only him. He traveled, he preached of the kingdom of God. He had his three, he had his 12, he had his 70, and he transformed them. And he passed on to them the things that they saw him doing. Which leads us to our second point, is that our leaders, our spiritual leaders, disciple us. God disciples us personally through the ministry of his word. We see this modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ as God himself comes in the flesh and shows and models what it's like to make disciples and then to continue to mature disciples. And he passes this on to his apostles that they might then carry on the same thing. And we see this in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 is probably, verses 16 through 20, is most well-known as being the Great Commission. And we see the very beginning stages of um, the fact that God calls his leaders to disciple his people here. What's interesting is that really, even though he is passing, if you will, the baton off to them for the, um, the role of discipleship, Jesus still really emphasizes his own work. If you read in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, so he's got the, the, the 11, you see in verse 16, so this is limited, his, his call here to the Great Commission is limited specifically to the apostles, and then we'll see in the, you know, throughout Acts how that continues to be what's replicated throughout other leaders. But he says to them in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not to them. It's to him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and his end promise is that he will be with them until the end of the age, meaning I am sending you out. In verse 19, his command to go, therefore, is written in the passive sense, meaning that they are actually being sent it is, it is Jesus that is sending them, and as they are going out, this is what they are to do. They are to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's his authority as he is with them, and as they go, he is working through them. And so even when we see that, uh, the fact that our disciples and the apostles here disciple us, disciple others, it is still through the Spirit of Christ. It is still Christ working through people for their spiritual good and edification. And this has really big ramifications for not only this point, but for the next point as well, our call and command to disciple one another. But we see him passing this off to his apostles. They're reminded of this fact again in Acts 1.8, that they are to be his witnesses throughout all of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes, the apostles minister in Jerusalem until Acts 8. And then in Acts 8, because of the persecution, the church scatters, all except for the apostles. They remain in Jerusalem. They remain in Jerusalem to continue to make disciples amidst tremendous and fierce persecution. While God then 
sends others out to preach the gospel and to make disciples among others as well. We see then in Acts 13, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church of Antioch with the priority of making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, and really the first and clearest example of the role and the importance of missions within the church. The church gathers together, but you will see even in Acts 13 too, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, again, we see this is the leading and the initiating of God. Just like it was with the apostles in Matthew 28, so it, again, so it is again that we see here. He sets apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that, they have, that he has called them to. And he sends them out on the missionary journey. And their model is to go out and to preach the gospel. Those who hear the gospel and respond in faith gather together. He stays with them for a while to disciple them and to teach them the things that they need to, to know. Really, two components as you look through, as you read through the book of Acts and then in Paul's pastoral letters, there's really two main things um, that are involved in the discipleship, a modeling of what a disciple looks like in the life of the discipler. Disciples should be able to look to the discipler and go, I'm getting a good idea of what a disciple of Christ looks like because I'm looking at you. So there's this lifestyle of modeling that, that the leaders and the spiritually mature should have. There's a lifestyle of discipleship, but then there's also doctrinal truths that need to be taught in discipleship. As you look at someone's life, you see the, the spirit, the fruit of the spirit being practiced. You see people that are loving and kind and patient, have self-control, they're gentle, they know, you, you see, they know how to interact with people, even their opponents. They're getting a good idea of what a real discipler looks like because they're looking at a real-life version. But they're also the component of teaching doctrinal truths, and that's the reason, I mean, that's the reason why most of the New Testament exists. Paul is writing letters. He would go, he would preach the gospel, People would respond in faith, they would gather together, they would see his life, and they would go, this is, I guess, is what a disciple looks like, let's be like him, let's do the things that Paul does. And then he would, so he would stay, and he would model, and he would teach, and then he would leave, and he would make his missionary circuit, and then on his way back to the sending church, he would revisit those churches to see how they're doing, to appoint elders and leaders within the churches that can, could continue the ball rolling of discipleship, and he would do that two more times in his three missionary journeys. Always the same thing, going and preaching the gospel, planting churches, instructing them on doctrine, modeling Christian character, leaving, returning, appointing leadership, moving on. All for the sake of being able to continue to perpetuate disciple-making. The church is preserved because disciples continue to be made in that the gospel is going out and people are becoming disciples. They're coming to know Christ. They're being converted to be a disciple of Christ. And the church is preserved by, by not only making those disciples, those converts, but continuing to mature those disciples to being like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the, the dual role of character modeling and doctrinal teaching go hand in hand and are necessary to accomplish those things. John Calvin would say that the way to church growth is the regular preaching of the word pastorally applied to the many needs of life so that they learn to profit personally from their own reading and applying of the word that there had to be doctrinal truths taught. The reason why Paul wrote the letter to the church in Philippi, to the church in Colossae, to the church in Thessalonica, to all the churches is to teach them doctrinal truths that they, that they needed to know in order for them to be able to live rightly and correctly like a disciple, to, be, to have a life that's worthy of the gospel. 
There are things that they needed to know, and by knowing this, these truths, these doctrinal truths, that they would then apply them to their lives and to grow, and the people that Paul or God had placed in a position of authority in those churches were to continue to teach those doctrinal truths so that people could continue to grow to be like Jesus Christ. The doctrinal truths that we learn are not meant to just be information. They are meant to be transformational in our lives to actually take hold, to grip the heart, and to change us and to grow us. And one of the things, what passage that makes this clear is 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul would write to Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will, able to, who will be able to teach others also. Paul's writing to Timothy and he's saying, I've entrusted to you this, this like cargo freight load of doctrinal truth. Take it, apply it, grow in it, and then find other faithful men who will do the same thing and they will embrace it and they will grow in it. And they will also then be able to train other men who will be able to be faithful and to embrace it and to apply it and to grow in it themselves. And this is how things continue to perpetuate and how the church is preserved through discipleship. It's, it's through godly men passing on to other godly people what it is that they should be embracing, how they should be living and growing to be like Christ. And this permeates and saturates the whole church. It's not just for, for the establishing of church leadership, although this is the context of Timothy. But if you think about it, it the, the spiritual and biblical principles and truths are to be applied to men and to women and to teenagers and, and young adults and college and children, all of these things. What it is, no matter your age, no matter how long you've known the Lord, no matter what you know in the Word, you are always in the position of a disciple, learning growing, feeding upon the truth of God's word. We all need to continue to grow into the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us have arrived. And by God's sheer grace, he does this in our lives. He does it himself personally, and he places spiritual leaders in our lives to help us grow. I can remember being a young believer and looking at the men that God had placed in my life that he had put around me. And I'm so thankful for those people that he put in my life. Some of them spiritual leaders, some of them just godly friends. But the role that God has for us and the way that he's structured his church is that we would learn and be discipled by the leadership that he puts in the churches, knowing that they're for our good. We talked about this um, last Sunday at length. Not only does God disciple us, not only do our leaders, our spiritual leaders disciple us, but we also disciple one another. And this is where I think most of us live in a daily basis. One believer talking to another believer as we bring the truth of God's word into our lives and our conversations and we, and we apply it to one another as, we're, as we are instructing, as we are teaching, as we are admonishing each other. Ephesians 5, if you want to flip to Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 21. This is one of these passages that talk about the role of discipleship that we play with one another. By, just by virtue of us being brother and sister in Christ. You know, there's gonna come a day where my job is no longer needed. I am going to be completely obsolete. And I look forward to that day. I'm cool with that. I am, I, I, because that's the day where we're all gathered together and the chief shepherd, we are, we are physically in his presence. 
and he is shepherding us for all of eternity. And all the other under-shepherds are worked out of a job. And I look forward to that day. I'm completely good with that. And, and it's, it, but what will remain for all of eternity is our relationship as brother and sister in Christ. We will always remain for all of eternity, brother and sister in Christ. In eternity, marriage is dissolved. In eternity, elder, deacon, these things are temporary necessities until Christ returns. They're, they're structures that he has put in place within the church to help preserve it and to grow. And when the chief shepherd appears, he's going to say, okay, all you elders and deacons don't need you anymore. And I'm going to say, yes. But we will always remain brother and sister in Christ. And there is that component that is a part of our relationship with each other right now. As we counsel one another, we do so as brother and sister in Christ. Ephesians 5, 19 and 21. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a way, there is a sense in which as believers we have a mutual submission to one another, regardless of our spiritual age, regardless of the amount of information that you know, regardless of whether or not one person is a pastor or an elder and another person is not. There is a sense in the church in which there is mutual submission to each other. A Christian read one of those verses this morning in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And there's also James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If anybody is wandering, let anybody go to him. Bring him back. It speaks to the, the idea that there is mutual submission within the body. If I am, if I am erring and I am living in sin and, and a brother or sister comes up to me and corrects me, I am to submit to the correction of the truth of God's word that is brought to bear on my life for my good by my brother and sister in Christ. That is not the time for me to pull out my pastor card and go, well, I am your spiritual authority and leader, and you may not speak to me that way. You may not correct me in that manner. There is a sense in which all of us are to mutually submit to one another because ultimately the thing that governs us is the truth of God's word. And I am called to submit to the truth of God's word to the same degree as all of us are called to submit to the truth of God's word. I am a disciple in the same way that you guys are disciples. We should be able to speak the truth in love to one another, to correct one another. All those one another commands in scripture, that is not like for all of, you know, the congregation, but not for the leadership. Those are all for all of us. We all rebuke one another. We all correct. We all admonish. We all teach one another. And so there's a, a real clear sense in which we disciple one another. And this is really um, where the role of biblical counseling is helpful and comes into to practice into the church body. One believer being equipped trained with God's word to be able to help another believer who is struggling with sin or suffering and going through hardship. One person goes to the next and says, would you please help me? I'm struggling. You know, not every counseling situation has to go to one of the elders of the church. There's many in this building right now I know that are well-equipped to minister the truth of God's word to a vast number of issues that plague the life of believers. And if God has brought somebody into your life that has issues and needs help, then it's probably the fact that God is calling you to help that person. Because what you are given is 
where help and hope come from? As you point them to Jesus Christ. We submit to one another, we disciple and we counsel one another. And this is especially, I think, applicable for um, families. You know, there's a, there is um, the call for fathers to be discipling their families, leading their families. Fathers to intentionally be discipling their children. Kids, you should know that your parents are, they're not trying to ruin your life. They're really not. They're not trying to make life hard for you or to make life miserable for you. They really do love you. But they know that your heart is prone to shooting off in sinful directions. How do they know that? Because their hearts are prone to shooting off in sinful directions. And they know that, that the amount of work that they're putting into keeping their heart on the correct course towards Christ is the same course that they're trying to steer your hearts onto. And so they're doing their best that they can to bring you the truth of God's word to help you, to teach you, to disciple you. And we talked about this last night as we were reading um, through this passage as a family. And, there's a sen- and there is a sense in which if I'm acting a fool in my own family and I'm in sin and I'm doing things or saying something that's not appropriate and one of my children comes up to me and says, Dad, is what you're doing or saying, would that be pleasing to Jesus? And I'm to receive that word of correction and to submit myself to that word of correction because it's coming from the truth of God's word and to be open to be, in a sense, discipled by others in my family, even in that way. Because I'm a disciple of Christ and he uses all kinds of people to help me grow me and change me. And not only does God disciple us, our spiritual leaders disciple us, we disciple one another, but we also then disciple ourselves. Second Timothy, back to Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. And I think these verses are really, really interesting. And listen to what Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. This is under the heading of, you know, him talking about a worker who is approved by God. And he says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable, for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master for the house, ready for every good work. And then from there, 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And he goes on from there. But it's interesting, he uses this example that in a great house, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. There's not only vessels that are, that are special and valuable and reserved for certain occasions. Think of like if you own a, a, a set of like fine china that you bring out for certain occasions, um, those things are special and they're set apart. And then you have other vessels of, of wood and clay that are common, used for every day. You know, we're not eating, I'm not, I'm not giving my kids the china to eat their cereal out of every morning. They can have the plastic bowls that if they fall on the ground, I don't have to worry about anything happening to them. He uses this analogy here that in a, on a great house, there are vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable, some for dishonorable. All of them are useful. So all of them are useful. They have their place. It's not like some are worthless. But he says... Therefore, so right, the therefore is because he's tying in the previous analogy into what he's about to say. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, right? And that would, that would carry over to verse 22, fleeing of the youthful passions and, flee, yeah, fleeing of the youthful passions. So if you cleanse yourself from your, youth, from your youthful passions, from those things that are dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, 
useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You disciple yourself. Are you cleansing yourself from what is dishonorable? You're well aware of your position in Christ. You're assured of your salvation in Him. You know you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, been adopted into His family. You're sure of His love for you, the fact that you will spend an eternity with Him. You're sure you're confident of all those biblical truths because it is true for you. You have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. You are His. But do you seek to be cleansed in the sense where you are practically growing, being like Christ? Are you discipling yourself? Do you take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ? After preaching the gospel to others, do you, evaluate your own, do you evaluate your own life to make sure that you yourself are not disqualified? I mean, are, we, are you personally and practically intent on growing and, and being cleansed, being purified? And again, what is the thing that God uses to do this? His word. The power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. What's interesting, you know, so John Calvin writes this, this big book, right, called The Institutes. I don't know if you've read through it. There's a lot of stuff in there. In his preface to the book, he writes this. This is the reason why he writes The Institutes. John Calvin was a theological giant, just a genius. God has gifted, had gifted this man in an incredible way. That's how most people know him. He was an, an incredibly affectionate and tender pastor to his church body. An exegete among exegetes, but a tender and affectionate minister to his flock as well. His desire was, he, 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 he labored not in his books so much, but in his sermons incredibly hard. He, incred he labored a lot to speak in a way that was understandable for the common person, to understand fascinating and deep theological truths so that they could understand them, know them, and embrace them, and be changed by them. For him, all of his doctrine funneled down to the idea that it had to result in practical holiness and godliness, or it was worthless. And so in his preface to Institutes, he writes its purpose solely to transmit certain rudiments by which those who are touched with any zeal for religion might be shaped to true godliness. That what he's writing, that it would appeal to anybody that has a genuine desire for true godliness would take the theological truths that he is laying out to the best of his ability and embrace them and it would actually change them in holiness. If what it is that you know from Scripture is not actually growing and changing you, then it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing in your life. And it's either one of two reasons. One, I'll, maybe there's more. I think of two off the top of my head. One is that you're not really regenerate. You're not a believer. It's just information. You're just learning more stuff. Or number two, you're really, you are a believer, but you're not applying. You're not taking what you're reading in God's word. This is what happens to people who read more Christian books than they read the Bible. They may be truly regenerate and they're learning a ton of theological and doctrinal information, but there is nothing that will actually change and transform your sinful heart like the word of God. It is God's word that you have to be in and reading. Read all, read all the other books. I love reading books. I read a lot of books. I love them. I grow. They're good. 
they do not transform me like the Word of God transforms me. There is nothing that will transform you. It is the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And not only tells you what to do, it tells you why you do what you do. You open this, and it is a mirror, and it is speaking to you. Sometimes it shouts, and sometimes it whispers, but it is always speaking to you to transform your heart to be like Christ. And if it is not resulting in holiness and godliness, we have some serious thinking and praying to do. I'm talking about a boots on the ground level. I'm talking about it. If it is not changing the way that you're speaking, if it is not changing the, the websites that you browse, if it is not changing the language that you use, if it's not changing the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, if it does not stop you from continuing to visit that liquor store, there is further work that needs to be done as the Word of God burrows into the depths and the furthest and darkest recesses of the heart that we must attend to on a daily basis. His word speaks to us. It purifies us. It transforms us. It reveals to me what needs to be changed about me. If you're in a season of life where you're avoiding spending time in the word, Consider what it is that you might, it might be going on in your life. Because the, one of the first things that the enemy will do is take the word of God and to make it appear obsolete, useless, boring, okay to neglect. Because God's word is the means by which we are transformed and changed and we are made into the disciples that he calls us to be. Are we in the word daily, being discipled? Are you open to pastoral shepherding and care by those whom God has put in your life? Are you open to the caring truth of others that God has put in your life? Are you actively discipling yourself? And key markers of discipleship, humility, right? If pride is the root of all evil, then it would stand to reason that humility would be the root of all godliness. Are you growing in love? The thing that Ephesians or Colossians 3 tells us that binds together all the other fruit of the Spirit. Love. The thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that if you give your life to the flames but have not love, you're nothing. It's worthless. The fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right, These things, fear of the Lord, love, humility, are essential markers to the life of a disciple. Let me think about this in some very practical ways as well. Are you making the time to help disciple others? Do you make time in your life to help disciple other people? Do you, de- do you see discipleship as a preserving work of God in your life? Do you see yourself as one who still needs discipleship? Because you do. I do. We all do. We all need the continued growth to be like Christ. And I'm not even assuming that everybody here today is a disciple. Do you know Christ? as your Savior. Do you know him by faith, trust him by faith and by faith alone and believe in his work upon the cross? I'm speaking to everybody here, to the young, to the old, whether you've been here for years or you've been here for months. The question is, is always one of why do I come? Am I a disciple of Christ? Do I continue to grow in my 
discipleship? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're here and you don't know him, then consider who he is and what he has done and how he offers salvation. And there's salvation found in nobody else other than in him. And by faith and by faith alone, you can be cleansed if you come to him by faith. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, as Romans 10 tells us. This is the moment where, you know, like I think of our call to take communion together. We take communion as disciples together with one another. This is an expression of our worship to him. I'm here this morning because he's called me and made me a disciple, and I'm glad, I'm glad to be that. I'm glad to be here to worship. I'm glad to be here with other disciples, all of us imperfect as we are, but all of us looking to the same Lord Jesus Christ as, our, as the source of our, of our hope, as the source of our life, and one that we desperately want to be like and have fellowship with. And so we take communion together as a body like this. It's an expression of worship, but as we do it, it's also a time of examination. We'll talk about this in depth next week, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 in, this, in the sobering warning that he gives to people who take of communion in an unworthy manner. We do so with examination, we do so with confession, but we also do so with the assurance of the pardon that he's given to us, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we come to the table together. We look to him. So as we partake of communion together, the elements are on the tables behind us. We'll partake of the elements together shortly, but I invite for you to get them and return back to your seat for a few moments of prayer um, and meditation upon um, what it is that we've heard and what the Lord is placing upon your heart. So you can grab the elements, return back to your seat, and we'll partake of t- take communion together shortly.